You are listening to Season 3 of Black Girl Missing, a podcast that covers stories of black girls reported missing when they were under the age of 18. When black girls go missing, their cases are severely underreported in mainstream media. We want to shift the narrative. We invite you to listen, learn, and do whatever you can to help us bring as many girls home as possible. Due to the sensitive and sometimes graphic nature of these cases, we advise you to use caution when listening. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Black Girl Missing. I'm Nikki. I'm Asa. And I am Feminista Jones. How are you? How are you guys doing? Girl, it's hot outside. Yeah, you know, yeah, audience, that's really you know, the only answer. <laughs> yep, you know, so we sit, we sit on these these videos and we look at each other, and <laughs> you all can't see, but I see two tired women who are just like, you know what, to hell with it all, <laughs> and I relate. <laughs> I'm relating hard right now. Oh, it's gosh. hot and people on the internet are annoying. That's it's been a no, day. That's really it. They are. They're wearing Yeah, they're wearing the chin straps, chin oh, strap masks. That's driving Why me. And uh, social distancing is two it two truly... inches these days. It's two days. Oh. You know, we're recording this the on a full moon. For the you listeners know? who are not aware, we tend to record on weekdays in the evenings after we've all been to work all day. And today was like a day. It was, it was a day. day. I actually worked today. So. I feel like I had to earn my no, that happen very often. just today. I feel wow. like I, um, I got to my wow. office at the time I shut the door. And I was like, why is this happening to me? Mm. They said guacamole at work today. I mean, I had like, I some time between meetings. And I was hungry, so I made guacamole. And mm. then I didn't get another mm. break until six o'clock in the in the evening when I clocked wow. out. What the hell? Wow. Yeah. So I mean, we're here, y'all. We love y'all. Um, you know, this this season we we've really been covering some um, some really interesting stories, but they, most of them have been fairly recent, right? Like, you know, during times that we have been alive. And today, I think we have a story that. Happened even before I was born, and you know I'm the old head of the group, so um, I think <laughs> I think we're gonna jump into I'm, and you know and y'all listen, listen, you know we we laugh and we joke and we have camaraderie with each other. Um, we all live in three different cities, and it's not very often that we are able to get together in these kinds of spaces. So we genuinely enjoy each other, we love each other very much, we're close friends. So you know, don't confuse our jovial nature with uh, being dismissive of the severity of the cases that we cover. Uh, we try to offer some, some levity, you know, we try to, try to give a little bit of something to take the edge off, you know, before we, we hop into these stories. All right, so we ready? All right, so today we're gonna to be talking about Mary Alice Clark, okay? Um, on August 1st, 1972, uh, 14-year-old Mary Alice Clark went missing from Omaha, Nebraska. But her story actually starts two years prior when she was 12 years old. 
Um, and, and you know, we all talk about Black girls. And I just want to give people a little bit of context that at this particular time in United States history, there was a lot of racial tension across um, the country. There was a lot of, um, you know, there were riots that were happening in cities across the country. There were groups that were organizing really under the Black Power Movement to try to support Black people and advocate for their rights. And I just kind of want to give you a little bit of context in this time. This is also around the time where Omaha got a Dr. Martin Luther King Boulevard, because, you know, the brother had been assassinated four years before. So we were still dealing with a lot of that stuff. I just wanted to kind of uh, locate us in that in that place. Um, so let's go back two years. On July 2nd, 1970, a bomb exploded at Component Concepts Corporation on Omaha's near north side. The business had a Defense Department minority subcontract, and that was motive enough for the so-called militants, according to the Omaha police captain Murdoch Plantner. The Negro operator had just completed arrangements to move to a newer, larger building. He had borrowed money from a local bank, and the city council had rezoned an area so he could move. He had been on television publicly thanking the council and the bank. That's what they said. Okay. Uh, so again, a bomb exploded. Okay, wait, 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 wait. At a, wait, at a wait. corporation. I, mm-hmm. I need a pause. Hang on. So is he okay. implying, is he implying that something shady was happening in favor yes. of black people? Mm-hmm. Of course he was. Okay. I just wanted to make sure mm-hmm. I was getting that right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we're not allowed legitimate business. It's that, again, so that's why I wanted to give people this context, right? Because there wasn't nothing that we could do. And this was also a time, um, people may not also recognize, that they were actually starting to give out these kinds of minority contracts to different people across the nation. Like, there was, you know, Dr. King had died, Malcolm X had died, Mega Evers. You know, there was all these, these, these kinds of, like, leaders and these folks that were fighting for freedom that were dying or had been killed and things like that. People were demanding legislative change, policy change, help and support and things like that. So, yes, we started seeing around this time an emergence of these kinds of contracts going to so-called minority business owners. Okay, and then in a few years, you'd start seeing them going to women as well. And that's why we now have the women and minority kind of contracts that happen. So this was starting to happen around this time. So ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms agent Thomas Sledge and Richard Kurd aided the uh, Omaha police in the investigation. Naming members of the National Committee to Combat Fascism, or the NCFF, formerly known as the Omaha Chapter of the Black Panther Party as suspects. So they basically saying that the Panthers went and blew up this, you know, exploded this bomb at this corporation. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like they were trying to say it was fraud because they, you know, they like almost like, you know, people set things on fire because they want to collect fire insurance money. Right. Okay. I, I viewed so it as they were saying that when they said the motive was enough for militants and that business had a defense department contract, I was taking it as they're working for, quote unquote, the man. So that's why they were considered suspects. Okay. I mean, I can see that. that I, I saw it a little bit different, but I mean, that we could, we could, we could rock with that too. We could rock with that too. Um, so according to Ed Clark, who is uh, Mary Alice's older brother, their older sister, Linda, had dated a prominent member of the NCFF, a man named Ed Pointexter. 
Their oh, home word? was so close to the. Yeah. Girl, we already there, Poindexter. Interesting. You know, right. Their home was so close to the NCCF headquarters that they could see the back porch from their front porch. Ed also stated that the young men in the NCFF were a welcome part of the neighborhood and no one feared them. All right. So they have clout. But again, it was formerly the Black Panther Party chapter, right? So there's some clout. These at this time they were establishing themselves. They were this is who you wanted to be around. This is, you know, what you wanted to be a part of. And and they're coming out looking in, in the cause and they're taking up the cause and fighting for black people. So after this bombing, Thomas Sledge, who was competing with the FBI to solve the cases of several bombings across the Midwest, presented an affidavit naming Mary Alice as an informant and claimed to have interviewed the then 12-year-old. Now, wait a minute. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no. Now, why would a 12-year-old be an informant for the FBI? Mm-hmm. Questions especially, that need Especially when her sister was romantically involved with someone they suspect being part of this bombing. Okay. All right. So anyway, and why are you in, why, why a 12 year old? She's a minor. Why? Okay. You know what? Mm-mm. So for those close to Mary Alice, like her brother Ed and her mother, they were not aware that she was named an informant, nor did they receive a copy of the affidavit, affidavit until 1997. Do the math real quick. That's 25 yep. years later. Okay. That is ridiculous. And they believe the information it contained to be a lie. I would also because think it, it was, was a probably lie. Was. Because she's 12 years old. But you know what? They adultify black girls, right? And black children. And so this idea that she's 12, yes, yeah, she's 12 to us, but to them, she grown. I wonder if there were like laws and things or like kind of policy rules around what age informants could be back then. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Somebody, if anybody knows you know anything I'm, about us and wants to send us an email, let us know. You know what I'm thinking about also is remember COINTELPRO was still active at that time. They supposedly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. shut it down in 1971. But I don't believe that for one moment, and neither should anyone else. <laughs> Not for one second. Nah. They're still alive. They're still going. <laughs> right. They're still, okay. yeah. They They're put still my moving. ass on the watch oh. list. Come on. <laughs> no, they're still going. No, I, I hear you on that. I hear you on that. And and and, I, and I'm with the family. I don't get an affidavit till 25 years late. I'm supposed to believe that one, that one, it hasn't been doctored over time, and two, that it was ever really legitimate. Okay. I'm st- I don't know about everybody that's listening. I'm still stuck on the fact that they said a 12-year-old was an informant, but okay. Um, and then, and then, and then, usually informants are people who have legal troubles or have some kind of something hanging over their head. So what could they have used to make her become an informant? Okay, we just gonna, we gonna let that go. Because cops lie. Cops lie. That's, that's. That's the bottom line. And we see that now. Okay. Uh, for those listening, you know, we're in the time of the Uvalde shooting and all this information coming out with these lying coward cops. So cops lie by default, right? All right. So the affidavit lists numerous weapons in such intricate detail. The relatives question 
how a seemingly average preteen knew so much about firearms and explosives. Mm. We're all asking the same question too. So you mean yep. to tell me she's she's like she's like well the AK fifty four to seven it got it got seventy three rounds on it and, mm. and you know the, the, I got the I got the Glock nineteen you know I got the I got the forty five sawed off you know like what the hell. Like, <laughs> It makes absolutely no sense. It's absurd. It is so absurd. It is so absurd. It's so absurd. Um, you know, you, you read the story and you're like, did they disappear, this girl? Like, what the, what the FBI got her working somewhere right now? They about to send her to the moon with these new images? Okay, whatever. She wasn't a militant, her brother told the, the Vanish podcast. Okay, that was a podcast he spoke with. And um, he was like, she's just a schoolgirl. She's a preteen. She's a little girl. Okay. Mary Alice was first assumed to be a runaway. As with so many of our young girls, people assume that they ran away and there's little investigation that goes into their disappearances. So this was definitely one of the issues that came up in a, early on in the investigation. So in 2016, her brother um, created a change.org position. Petition, excuse me. And I think this is important because sometimes we talk about how, you know, the family carries things on. The family never forgets. The family does not let go, right? And we're going from 1972 to 2016. So what is that? That's 16, 20, that's 36 plus eight. What is that? 44 years. 44 years after she disappeared, her brother is still trying to figure out what is going on, right? So he writes, please join me in asking President Obama to direct the Attorney General and the Inspector General of the Department of Justice to investigate ATF agent Tom Sledge and the Omaha ATF records from 1970 to determine if my sister was a victim of the nationwide effort to eliminate the Black Panther Party. It is a crime to lie on an affidavit. Sledge should have been investigated and fired in 1970 over this affidavit. Everything Sledge did to investigate, excuse me, on August 1970, an August 1970 bombing that was blamed on the NCCF should also be questioned and investigated. He may have fabricated evidence to convict two innocent men for a crime they didn't commit. And that's really interesting because if you think about it, if they're saying that she's an informant and she's dropping dime on the NCCF and then they come back later and they, you know, are, are, are trying to arrest and blame these people for this bombing, then they were probably citing her fake or her alleged testimony and saying, well, we've been working on this for a couple of years because we had this informant who was close to them and she told us this, this, and this, and this is why we believe that that happened. But if they were lying about her and her engagement with them, then they were lying about everything. So again, we're talking 44 years later, y'all. And his brother has not let this go. So in the position, he states that this agent, Tom Sledge, claimed my baby sister saw 10 boxes of machine guns with six guns on each box inside the NCCF. He said she described the guns so accurately he knew they were AK-47s. He also claimed Mary Alice saw 15 bundles of dynamite with 12 sticks to a bundle inside the house. He said that five men, some of whom I knew, 
made a bomb out of dynamite in front of my sister. I do not believe that is true. Sledge never told our mother that he put my sister's name on his affidavit. And he spelled her first name wrong as well. Mary Ellis, M-A-R-Y-E-L-L-I-S, making me wonder if he ever met her. Because her name is Mary Alice. It's M-A-R-I-A-L-I-C-E. So her mother wasn't informed that she was, if they actually even spoke to her, wasn't informed that they were speaking to her and she was a minor. So aside from that. Because I don't think they ever talked to her. And then she knew the exact number of all of these weapons and bombs and Mickey model, all that jazz. The girl said 12 by 12, 4 by 4. Right. The Come she on. described the gun so accurately. He he knew that they were AK forty sevens. How would she describe that? How would a child who was kid first of all, kids are poor historians as it is. They don't know Come how on. to and know they things accurately. <laughs> <laughs> and if they think they're gonna get kids in trouble, they lie. They lie. They, lie. they lie, they make up yes. things, whatever. So Listen. They wake up in the morning. You'd be like, good morning. They'd be like, good morning. I'm like, you lying. (laughs) (laughs) He's lying. For him to say, (laughs) she described an AK-47 so well. What did she tell you? Did she say, I know how long the muzzle is? She probably don't even know what the hell that is. Like, come on. This is ridiculous. They're trying to make this baby out to be like a fucking gun runner. Like, she's like a top-notch gun runner is what they're trying to make her out to. She's an Israeli like she's gun dealer. Like, she's a mercenary and an actor. Like, she's... Like, she's Right. Like, <laughs> born identity-ass shit. Like, come on. This is why, this, see, this is why I, I view law enforcement the way that I do is because they do shit like this. This does not make any sense. It is not accurate. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm listening to you describe what's in a petition and an affidavit and none of the shit adds up. You're going to tell me a 12 year old. None of it. And when did like the most time, when does she have time to count these boxes of guns? Hello. But the fact that this, we can call, we see this is bullshit just from reading this little bit, but this was enough to get people convicted. Yep. So how many people were- Because that's how the system was. Off of this foolishness. How many people- Exactly. Were convicted. And I mean, this is where a lot of our abolitionist views come from because it's bullshit. Period. It's like, whatever you say for my opinion, this is what, this is what your proof was? This, this and this has been going on this since then, right? And so we still have people from this time sitting in jail to this day, people who are in exile to this day because of these tactics and because of these practices. So many of our people were treated like this. No, the, the, the coerced confessions, torture, disappearing people, False, falsifying documents and affidavits, being surveilled, having things planted on them, all kinds of things. And this is a 12-year-old Black girl. Who's going to care about her enough to be like, 
let's let's actually double check this. You know, it doesn't matter to them because all they see is another little 12 year old N word that they gonna grow up and that they're ready to take and use for target practice. That's all they care about. And so the and fact also, that you look not, and then we, go ahead. As long as there's somebody who is about to be responsible for this, it don't matter. It don't matter if it's the right person right. or not. And they look at it as, even if it's the wrong person, it's still one of these people that we want to get off the street anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's still one, one of, of them. And the thing is, it's, it's still one of us. It doesn't yep. matter. As many of us as they can get off the streets, as many of us as they can lock up and put, you know, sell up to these private prisons, as many of us that they can try to enslave again, they don't care. And unfortunately, our children are vulnerable targets and have been for decades, right? So let's get back to the story. Um, so the, the affidavit that was used by Sledge to get a federal search warrant, okay? They have to say federal because y'all don't know how hard it is to get a federal search warrant. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the affidavit used by Sledge to get a federal search warrant for the NCCF headquarters um, before the raid on July, before the raid on July 21st, 1970, U.S. Attorney Richard Dyer um, called the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation for possible intelligence concerning fortifications at the NCCF headquarters. And the search warrant was squashed by the Department of Justice claiming unreliable and for false information since the FBI already had an informant in the chapter. Pause, I gotta let y'all, gotta, gotta, for the people that don't know, for the people that don't know, the Black Panther Party was plagued by informants. Okay. By the end of the 70s, they said that it was assumed that almost one in every two Black Panthers was an FBI informant on some level. Okay. And this is talking directly to people that were um, involved in the Panther Party and other activist groups. The Black Panther Party had become so unstable and so riddled with informants that you couldn't, they couldn't trust anybody. And so this led to a lot of tension and a lot of friction, not just within the Panther Party itself, but with these other groups like an, like an NCCF and like some other groups that were out there because they were like, has everybody turned, you know, FBI informant? We got to lock it in. We got to be, you know, more secure with our stuff. They weren't trusting people. Um, they were doing their own interrogations of people and things like that because they couldn't trust anybody. All right. So they're saying that they already had an informant. So they're like, there's no way that this 12-year-old girl was your informant because we already had one. And our informant was not a 12-year-old girl, right? Um, They also didn't want a repeat of the raid in Chicago that had killed Black Panthers Mark Clark and Fred Hampton in December of 1969. ATF agent Tom Sledge was told to return, excuse me, to return the search warrant to the judge unserved. So. So the feds were like, nah, you're full of shit. You can't do this. This is not right. This is wrong. We already got this taken care of. And we're not about to get into a situation where we end up killing some people who haven't done anything again, even if they're black. That's not a good look for us. Right. But Hampton was popular, y'all. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Speaking of informants, man. Whew, anyway, anyway, <laughs> that story there. 
man. Anyway, um, so in August of 1970, the police were lured to an abandoned building in which there had been placed a suitcase full of dynamite. Said dynamite exploded, killing one police officer and injuring another. The NCCF was investigated for this incident, and two of its leaders, David Rice and Ed Poindexter, were charged, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. All right, listen. I mean, we don't know if they did it, allegedly. But I would understand if they did, why they did it. I'm not, we're not saying that they did it, but I could understand. Fast forward two years, August 1st, 1972. Okay, that's where we started this story. Mary Alice was last seen near the Valley High Lounge in Omaha, Nebraska. She got into a car with license plates from Chicago, Illinois, and has never been heard of from again. Excuse me. The car has never been found, and Mary Alice still remains missing. In 1980, Mary Alice's mother petitioned the court to declare her dead. Mary Alice was 5'2 and weighed 130 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She has a birthmark on her right hip and a scar on the back of her head. And if anybody does have any information, they should contact the Omaha Police Department at 402-444-4127. There's actually very little information available about Mary Alice Clark, but to the family's surprise, the creators of the Vanished podcast uncovered a police report that documented the rape of Mary Alice in 1970, but there was no known investigation. Theories are swirling about that, that say maybe her disappearance was retaliation for snitching, either on her assaulters or on the NCF, NCCF. And so let me tell you again. All right, so I got to give you a little bit of context, a little bit more context here. So remember just a few minutes ago, I said that there was a lot of paranoia within these groups. There was a lot of paranoia flying around. There were people that, because they suspected others of being informants, things like that, would engage in torture practices, weaponizing rape and other kinds of things. Um, that is not acceptable behavior. We do not condone that. We do not anything. Unfortunately, that was a common tactic within some of these groups, including the Black Panther Party. And a lot of times we try to glamorize the Black Panther Party, but we have to be honest about a lot of the things that they were doing. One, at the, the patriarchy that they were upholding and the abuses of the women within the Black Panther Party, they'll come and say, oh, well, the women were leading a lot of the chapters and things like that. And I'm like, yes, got a couple of women, a handful of women that may have been doing that. But the women that were also like the foot soldiers and things like that, I mean, people have documented it, written about this. Eldridge Cleaver wrote about it. Others, they were concubines. You know what I mean? They were being used almost as sex workers as they were being forced into, you know, to having sex with Black Panther leaders and all those kinds of things. Um, they're, and I... <laughs> And there's somebody I'm not going to name, but I'll tell the story. And I, I'm not saying the name for uh, my own personal reasons. But there was someone who was allegedly involved in such a so-called torture uh, situation because 
he had gotten to a point where he was extremely paranoid about the people around him because of everything that was going on in his time. And he was accused of torturing two people, uh, two women. And um, he does not speak about it or whatever, but other people who looked into it said that it was because he believed that they had been informants and that they were trying to destroy their their organization and things like that. And so this was something that regularly happened. Bobby Seale allegedly did it. Huey Newton allegedly did it. Um, I believe that Huey had it done to Bobby. Um, so there was a lot of this kind of thing going on within these organizations. So that's, and I'm saying that because this seems like it could be viable, right? If word got out that Mary Ellis had been an informant, right? Even if they hadn't seen an affidavit or anything like that, even as ridiculous as it sounds, it is definitely feasible that members of the local group would torture her, beat her, try to get information out of her, even kill her because they believed that she was snitching on them, okay? Um, and that's And it's horrible. It's horrible to think about that. It's horrible to think about are people getting to a place where we're supposed to be fighting for liberation and instead we are torturing, raping, abusing, and killing each other out of paranoia and fear, right? So there's that element. There's also the element that she was a 12-year-old girl. And we know when we look at things like street harassment and sexual assault and violence, especially within our community, we know that 12-year-old girls are very easy targets for predatory older men, okay? This was very real in the 70s, just it was real in the 80s, 90s, it is still real today. They are preyed upon by older men in our community. So it is also possible that something like that happened to Mary Alice Clark. Um, and the fact that the police are, you know, uncovered a document that said that she was raped at 12 years old we don't. We have no, no information about it because they didn't bother to investigate it. Why did they not bother to investigate it? Because it was only a few years earlier that it became illegal to actually rape black girls and women. So this is oh, not a priority yeah. thing, right? Like it was. It was. It was perfectly legal to rape black girls and women until the late '60s. So, what you know? I think in 1970. Why would that be a priority for anyone, right? So, you know, those are those are some of the things I'm thinking about. Um, but yeah, so we don't have a whole lot of information, but this background does really kind of set it up that it's it's a, it's a strong possibility that it has something to do with this particular organization and her proximity through her siblings to this organization. If somebody was trying to hurt her brother, right? or hurt the guy that her sister was involved with, taking the little girl would do it, right? Maybe they tried to offer a ransom or something like that, and, and maybe the siblings ain't saying nothing about that. You know, we don't know that the siblings and the family are giving us the whole story either. Mm-hmm. You see what right, I mean? Right. So, yeah. you know, so long ago. But this is this is definitely an interesting story. And she's never been seen from again. I mean... I I would think that she's probably not alive anymore, but that no body, no recovery, nothing. So this story is, is still open. 
I just have to wonder like how hurtful it is for her mom to have just gotten to the point where she just gave up hope and said, can you just list her as deceased? Right. Yeah. That's to get rough. some closure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just try to get some kind of closure or something. <sighs> That's so sad. Yeah. All right. But well, I, I mean, feel that like was a story some, of Alice Clark and I don't know. What do you mean? I feel like somebody knows something. Um, and maybe mm-hmm. with us posting this and other podcasts covering it, maybe, just maybe, something might happen. Right. That would be amazing. Right. All right. So that's the story of Mary Alice uh, Clark. And we appreciate you all for listening. And, you know, we will continue to bring you these stories of uh, Black girls that have gone missing um, before they, they turned 18. Uh, we definitely appreciate all the support. We get a lot of love from folks. Um, and we don't take any of that for granted. We really appreciate those of you that listen, those of you that tell uh, people to listen, those of you that share our social media posts and share the the stories and things like that. We really, really appreciate you. Shout out to everybody that gives us five-star ratings. We love you. We love you. We love you. Um, and also yeah. all of our listeners that uh, send us messages and emails, giving us other cases to research. That's really, really helpful on our end. Yeah. All right. Goodbye, y'all. Bye. See you next time. Bye. Black Girl Missing is researched, written, and produced by three concerned black women who want justice for missing black girls. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite platform so that we can keep bringing you stories of black girls that need to be told. Today's episode was written by Feminista Jones and produced by Nikki Irene. The Black Girl Missing theme was produced by Siraj Khalif. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at BLK Girl Missing. On Facebook, we are at Black Girl Missing Pod. On Instagram, we are at Black Girl Missing Podcast. Visit our website for more information on each case, blackgirlmissingpod.com. Contact us on social media or email us at blackgirlmissingpodcast at gmail.com with any tips, feedback, or names of girls you want us to look into. You can also support Black Girl Missing by subscribing to our Patreon, where you will receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and bonus episodes. Go to patreon.com slash blackgirlmissingpodcast and subscribe today. We really appreciate your support.